0: Perhaps no other book in the Bible has spawned more curiosity and controversy than the last one. The book of Revelation is filled with bizarre imagery that, for some, makes us scratch our heads. Today, on Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll starts a comprehensive verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. Along the way, we hope to remove some of the confusion about this book and replace it with awe and wonder for the main character in John's Revelation, Jesus our King. Chuck titled this first message in the series, The Apocalypse in Panorama.
1: Well, if you have a Bible with you, I hope you will turn it to the last book in it. I want to read a few verses from the first chapter and then just a few from the last. Revelation 1. Verse 1, and then have ready, if you will, the 22nd chapter in the last few verses there. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom, And perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Verse 19, Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Then chapter 22 Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen.
0: You're listening to Insight for Living. To dig deeper into Revelation with Chuck Swindoll, be sure to download his Searching the Scriptures guide by going to insight.org slash studies. And now the message from Chuck titled, the Apocalypse in Panorama
1: Whoever opens the Bible to the last book of the Bible is ushered into an amazing world. The familiar parameters of Earth as we know it today are pushed back. And we are suddenly encountering scenes that seem weird and cosmic battles that, that boggle our minds even more than we can imagine. It isn't unlike going about 30 to 45 minutes into a J.R.R. R. Tolkien book named The Lord of the Rings. Suddenly, you're removed from the familiar and you are introduced to the land of Middle-earth, threatened by the power of an evil overlord. And there are multi-headed monsters and ferocious beasts and long, sharp swords and snarling dragons. And you find yourself wondering if the darkness will ever be removed and if good will ever win over evil as gigantic cataclysms break on the scene. Ultimately, the darkness turns to light as Aragorn the king finally is revealed in all of his splendor. Just when you're about convinced that there's no way good ultimately triumphs over evil. The book of Revelation is a divinely inspired drama of good engulfed by evil until the king of kings appears and leads the conquest to triumph but the wonderful thing about the book is that it is it is uh, it is not fiction it is reality uh, it is not fantasy it's truth and what began in the new testament as the king coming in obscurity and and almost secrecy veiled in 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 flesh and appearing in the little the little country town of Bethlehem and finally reared in Nazareth as a as a carpenter of all things and then and then at the age of 30 he quietly begins a ministry that is marked by misunderstanding and mistreatment and uh, one enemy and adversary after another until he is finally finally driven, if you will, to the cross, where he submits and suffers and dies. And if that seems strange to the reader of the Gospels, can you imagine how it must have felt to the twelve who followed him, anticipating that he would one day lead them in triumph into a kingdom that would overcome evil? But there they stood, those who stayed close enough to see, as he hung and died and was buried. Revelation is the answer to the gospel's hope. Revelation provides the solution to the problem that is encountered all the way through the book from Genesis to Jude. Revelation says good ultimately triumphs, And it isn't in Middle Earth, it's on planet Earth. And it isn't about some creative novel born in the mind of a man, but it is the message of God to his people. It is indeed the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you can understand why so many have gone to wild and ridiculous extremes as they've allowed their imaginations to run free. I remember sitting as a little boy in church, just as you're sitting in church today, and hearing the book of Revelation referred to, and wondering if I would make it through the day before the dragon appeared, or if the beast was living next door, and we might encounter something like that before the week is up. I, uh, you can understand now why so many have dismissed the book as, as uh, nothing but an imaginative set of events dreamed up in the mind of some recluse living on an island in the South Aegean Sea. One man even defines Revelation. It is a famous book in which St. John the Divine concealed all that he knew. The revealing is done by commentators who know nothing. Uh, that really is the uh, majority opinion among the learned. And because I I think honestly that Revelation has suffered more at the hands of its friends than its enemies, I've decided rather than to plunge into the first chapter and the first verse, I would back away and we would look at it as a whole, sort of get an overview of the book and take a calm deliberate approach to it. So let me begin by offering three very practical reminders to guard us from ridiculous extremes. May I do that? The first of the three is expect the unusual. Expect the unusual. This is not like any other Bible book. It's a little like Ezekiel. There's a touch of it like Zechariah, but it is nothing like the writings of Paul. It does not sound at all like Peter, and even the symbolisms and figures of speech do not seem like John. John, who doesn't write like that in his gospel or in the three letters, is now writing these words that for centuries... have been been struggled over and tried to to be explained. Uh, But this is apocalyptic literature. This is prophecy, deliberately given in symbols so as to mask the message from those persecuting. Understand this came in the reign of Domitian, the most vicious and vile of the emperors of Rome. He's the one who sent John to the island of Patmos in exile to rid the land of a man like this and his influence. It was Domitian and his ilk who could have gotten hold of a book like this. And my, they would have read the whole story and realized Caesar is not the king. But written in symbols to them, it was ludicrous. Nothing but... uh, the wild thinking of this hermit who now lives on Patmos. So the symbolism has a purpose. Uh, expect the unusual. If you come across things you don't understand, welcome to the club. You'll be in good company. There are parts of it you simply cannot grasp, and that's okay. Second, restrain your imagination. <laughs> Some of you are very creative people. Uh, You will want to make something of everything. There are times it's acceptable to put names and details to figures of speech and symbols. There are other times you will not be able to do so with any sense of dogmatism. Let me show you an example of where you can know. Chapter 1, John has heard a voice And the voice has given him a message, and John is curious. So he turns, verse 12, to look in the direction of the voice, and he witnesses something he's never seen before. He sees this voice in invisible form, this one speaking to him, and he says, having turned, chapter 1, verse 12, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, I've seen charts on the book of Revelation, and when you are one chapter into it, you have this creature, and he has flames coming out of his eyes, but it doesn't say flames came out of his eyes. Look at what it says. It says that his eyes were like a flame of fire. The analogous term is used all the way through, like this, as that. It doesn't mean it's that, it means it is like that. It goes on to describe him with another analogy. In his right hand, he I should say verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze. I've seen the, I've seen the pictures. Bronze shoes, bronze boots, but it doesn't say they were bronze. It says they were like bronze, but not just bronze. Bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. So something about the 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 boots being worn or the shoes being worn or sandals has a glow to them. That's the point. That's the point of it. And and his voice was like the sound of many waters. I've heard this described as you were uh, to stand near Niagara. It doesn't say that the voice was many waters. It says it was like many waters. Apparently was deep and roaring and commanding. But we're not really left to wonder who this is or what this is about. Look at verse 20. You're on safe ground when you interpret according to the scriptures. Now we're told about the mystery. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw at my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, why the seven stars are the angels. And the seven churches and and the 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 angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Still a little bit uncertain, isn't it? Angelos, translated angels in the scriptures in the New Testament, is a term that frequently means messenger. The angel of such and such is frequently the messenger of such and such. because And so, this no doubt would represent the seven leaders of the seven churches mentioned for us in verse 11. The seven messengers would be those who make the message known to each of the seven churches. So we are given the interpretation. Now, go to chapter 13. This is one of my favorites. Chapter 13 is the most... Uh, is the most lengthy portrayal of the Antichrist who is yet to come. So it begins with a bang. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. The dragon is identified in the book of Revelation as Satan himself, so he's not called Satan, he's called the dragon, stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast. Coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadema, or ten diadems, ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And Satan or the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And why we, we have this beast portrayed as he leads people with enormous a charisma and and authority, and he has answers that no one else before him has had and and the people follow him, and in fact they become a part of his system, and they receive a mark, a mark on their foreheads and we We, we read of the benefit of that mark in verse seventeen He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number of that is that of a man, and his number is 666. (laughs) And I have heard this beast identified as all sorts of people, and I cannot find those people in the 18 verses of chapter 13, it's, it's Nero, even though he's dead, it's Domitian, it's Hitler, it's Stalin, it's Roosevelt, <laughs> it's Reagan, it's Clinton, made likely. No, 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 no it's, <laughs> it's, it's a joke. It's a joke. I've carried away with my own stuff here. I, Somebody figured up the numerical 666 and tied it into letters and it's spelled Swindol. So don't go there. If you're waiting for me to identify the Antichrist, please don't come back. It, I will never. I have no authority. I have no insight. I, I don't even uh, really have much patience with that kind of thing. So restrain your imagination. Where the scripture helps us, We'll allow the scripture to speak. Where good study and reference work assists us, we will suggest that. But there will not be dogmatic statements uh, made or predictions given that we can't back up with good scholarship. Uh, I like the way uh, Earl Palmer addresses this. Let me suggest one rule for biblical interpretation, he writes. Lean is better than luxurious. When it comes to biblical study, if we were to err, it would be better to err on the side of interpretive restraint than on the side of interpretive excess. Back to chapter 1, we uh, can assure you that there will not be excess in our study of Revelation. At any point where it is an opinion, I will state it as that, and my opinion is worth no more than anyone else's opinion who has studied the text uh, and goes at it as I'm going after it with uh, an eye for, for uh, interest in accuracy. So restrain your imagination. Third, ask three questions. In whatever section we are in of the Scriptures, always ask these three questions. Number one, what does it say? That's a question of observation, and that's the first place people tend to go into error. They read part of what it says, or they read more than what it says, or less. What does it say? Let it say that. Let it say what it says. The ideal is to do our best to find out what it said in the day in which it was written. Which brings me to the second. What does it mean? That's a question of interpretation. That's a more serious and complicated question to answer. Now that I see what it says and have a pretty good grasp of it, having observed the text, what does that mean? And again, ideally, what did it mean to them when they first read it or they first heard it or John first saw it? What does it mean? Third question, what does it mean to me? That's a question of application. Now that I've read what it says, now that I have grasped pretty well what it means, what does it mean to me? Skeptics have a field day with Revelation. One cornered the famous Charles Haddon Spurgeon back in the 19th century, and said to him, as he had read one of the cryptic sections of the book, there now, can you tell me what that means, Mr. Spurgeon? With a twinkle in his eye, he looked at the very difficult passage, and he responded with a smile, why, of course, I can tell you what that means. It means just what it says. (laughs) There will be times that that will be the best we can do. All of the details are not spelled out. So we are not in the business of offering prophecies that uh, do not have biblical justification, and we will restrain ourselves as we ask those three questions. Now let's move to some foundational information that will give us an understanding, a better understanding of the book. First of all, the title of the book. The title is taken directly from the first line of the first verse. Apocalypsis, Yesu Christu. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Please observe, revelation is singular. The most common mistake made by well meaning Christians and non Christians is to call this book plural. It isn't the book of Revelations. It is the body of revelation. So get rid of the S. When we get our word apocalypse in the English language, it conveys the idea of an imminent cosmic cataclysm. The ultimate ultimate disaster and final doom of something. But that's, that's not the meaning in its original Greek. Apocalypsis means unveiling, disclosing. Something that has been hidden or not known is now made visible.
0: You're listening to Insight for Living and the Bible teaching of Chuck Swindoll. Today's message is especially significant because it's the first in a comprehensive study through the entire book of Revelation. Chuck titled this series, Revelation, Unveiling the End. To learn more, visit us online at insightworld.org. Because of the scope of this book, Chuck has broken his message series into three sections, or acts as he likes to call them. And you can learn more about accessing all the digital audio files by visiting us online at insight.org. Plus, all three acts have been recorded, and you can purchase the complete package by calling us. If you're listening in the United States, call 800-772-8888. You often hear me explain that it's not the sale of resources that fuel this Bible-teaching ministry. Instead, Insight for Living is made possible through the voluntary donations of folks who share our passion for God's Word and want to share Chuck's teaching with others. And it's working. Let me share a quick example. I was really moved when I read a thank-you note from someone who'd fallen away from their faith but had a resurgence of joy when they discovered Insight for Living. This listener explained his journey nearly ended in personal disaster. And then he added, Your teaching has been nothing less than a life rope for me in the truest sense of the word. He shared that five months ago, he lost his job and his ability to financially support Insight for Living. And he added, I write this to you in humility, respect, and gratitude to their fullest extent, along with tears of thankfulness in my eyes. You see, God is using your contributions to restore the faith of people who have lost their way, and we are so grateful for your partnership with us. To give a donation today, call us. If you're listening in the United States, call 800-772-8888. You can also give online at insight.org slash donate. I'm Bill Meyer, inviting you to join us again next time when Chuck Swindoll continues his study in the book of Revelation on Insight for Living. The preceding message, The Apocalypse in Panorama, was copyrighted in 2003, 2006, and 2024. And the sound recording was copyrighted in 2024 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide. Duplication of copyrighted material for commercial use is strictly prohibited.